I'm Sharon Hargrave, and I'm the executive director of the Boone Center for the Family, and we are so amazed this many people are in this room. Have y'all seen how nice the weather is outside? I guess I shouldn't have said that, should I? Um, we're so excited to have you here. Some of you have been at our sessions all along the week, and we've had such a great week, and so many speakers talking about different relationship topics. It's been a real joy. Um, the Boone Center for the Family, in a nutshell, is a resource, is a training and resource center. And we have two basic programs at the Boone Center for the Family. Our flagship program is called Relationship IQ. And Relationship IQ is based on, it's a program built for 18 to 28 year olds to teach them how to do healthy relationships. Um, it's a really fascinating curriculum. There's uh, six modules in it. Each module can be taught in either an hour or it can be used as a small six week group um, study. So in that curriculum, we address issues like uh, boundaries and friendships and how to get along with your parents and sex and dating. And it's just a marvelous curriculum. If you're working with young adults in churches, uh, we're over here at this table and we'd love to tell you about it afterwards. The other program we have is a program that's called Relate Strong. Relate Strong is more for um, couples and the individuals later on in church life. Uh, basically, the principles of Relate Strong teach us a lot about who we are and how we react to pain and stress. Um, I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes when I get under stress, I react in ways that I just really don't understand where I came from when I do that. So it talks a lot about understanding your own reactions and how to relate to people that are close to you. Scripturally, uh, the principle is based on the whole idea in Ephesians, Colossians, Romans, Corinthians about taking off the old self and putting on the new, even with the people that you live with, with 24 hours a day. So it's a really fun curriculum. Um, and uh, But today, um, I have the privilege, Terry and I are kind of doing this workshop together, but we have this hour and then we have the next hour. Uh, my husband, Terry Hargrave, he's a professor of marriage and family therapy at Fuller Theological Seminary. And he is the main driver of our session on the first session, where we're going to talk a lot about a new perspective on marriage. Um, Terry and I have been married 40 years in November. Yay! And we met in eighth grade English. And we just took his parents to Santa Fe, New Mexico to celebrate their 70th wedding anniversary. So um, we have a lot of marital history between us and we love to talk about marriage. So thanks so much for giving up your beautiful afternoon on the beach and joining us here. Um, please welcome with me, Terry Parker. Thanks so much. I, and I really echo what Sharon's saying, and thanks for coming, because Friday afternoon's tough, right? I just, I feel like we're sort of uh, in a airplane hangar or something like that. We're right next to Starbucks, so we can, you know, <laughs> if you get tired, just just gr grab you some caffeine and keep on going. We'll, we'll, we'll make it one way or another. So, I, what we're going to talk about in this first hour 
is the idea of usness, this, this new perspective that is actually a very, very old perspective. You're well familiar with us language, but you probably have not heard it applied to marriage mm, lately. It's something that's been around a long time. In fact, in the first chapter of Genesis, that's where it starts. That's where this us language really begins. Uh, if you read Genesis 1.26, you'll know that when, when, when the author is talking about how God created human beings, he said, God created human beings in his own image, right? And God speaks to himself at that point. Let us make humans in our own image. It's an us language. Uh, um, most, most likely and absolutely a relational framework that God is talking about in between himself, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. From the get-go, from the very beginning, you have this us language saying, human beings will be born out of relationship. And all the scientific discoveries that we've made that are exciting, when we talk about the brain science, we find that we, in fact, are relational beings, that we do sync up with one another. In other words, we get on the same neural pathway. And when we are talking to one another, when we're empathizing with one another, when we're intimate with one another, we can track the neuronal history of what's going on in that interaction, and it actually matches one another. What's really amazing is when you, when you have a new mother and a child, you know, that child has been carried around in the mother's uh, womb all this time, actually when they come out and the mother is nurturing and cuddling that child, actually they find that they're on the same neuronal rhythm. Wow. It's really something. It's, it's, a, it's a magical thing. And you and I know that when you're in a marital relationship, you have a chance to create an usness. What you'll hear most often is, is that marriage is like two individuals that come together in some contractual basis. Maybe it's maybe even from a from a church perspective, it's it's almost held as sacramental in some cultures as where where it's really a big deal. It's a God ordained relationship. You know, uh, and boy, I tell you, it's it's unfortunate that we've lost this usness language in being able to describe relationships. I was a new professor in 1989 teaching marriage and family to college freshmen. And I had one of those typical uh, classes at the University of Mississippi that was real popular to take because it wasn't too hard. And, uh, you know, and we met in an auditorium. There were 300 people in the auditorium at a time. And I would be teaching his classes, kind of uh, telling my class how much I cared for my wife and how excited I was about marriage and how I was going to teach them about marriage. And a, a hand came up from the back of the auditorium and it was a, it was a college sophomore. And he says, Prof, he says, what is marriage? 
And I thought, I, you know, like any good assistant professor who's new on the job, I made up an answer. But, <laughs> but it really kind of stumped me. I mean, I had, you know, covenant and contract and, uh, you know, this social exchange idea. And I was, I, I, I have to tell you, I was just a little bit lost for words. And that stuck with me. I, I never could shake that off. And then uh, about a year and a half later, I had the opportunity to do a plenary talk with one of the founders in the marriage and family field, Carl Whitaker. And Carl was a crazy guy. He was a crazy therapist. He was an experiential therapist and was so uh, uh, active in therapy, having the family act out certain motives and certain, certain uh, poses and certain role plays. And he was all over the board. And we were trying to work out a presentation. And he was bringing up ideas that I knew we weren't going to do. But he looked at me right in the middle of this. And he says, you know, Terry, I love my wife, Muriel. And, I, I, and then he just stopped. And I thought, well, that's good, Carl. <laughs> Muriel was his wife of 53 years at that time. So I thought, good, you love your wife, Muriel. And he said, and I'll miss her when she dies. You know, he was so convinced that she would die before him, you know, and I, it's like, okay. And there was this long pause, and he says, but you know, what I'll miss more than her, I'll miss what we are together. And I thought, that's it, that's it, that's, that's the language of usness. What he was saying is that it's not Muriel, it's not Carl, it's what Muriel and Carl are together. When we start defining marriage, we have to start thinking about this invisible person that exists in our relationship. There's actually a between us in the relationship. And you and I know, as believers, we would say, the most important things are actually the things that are invisible, right? The most powerful things are the things that are invisible. But I started looking around for evidence of this us relationship and just the way that people talk about their relationship. You can tell that they, they develop in their relationship, whether it's good or bad, they develop it's a personality in their relationship. You know, for instance, I can, I can tell after 40 years of being married to Sharon and 48 years of knowing her, I can tell when us is getting ready to have a fight, right? I tell you the truth, I, I even know it so well, I know when us, I, I know what us is going to say next in the fight. It's, that's, that's, that's how predictable our usness has become. Our usness has its own likes and dislikes. You know, I like to say, use this illustration. You know, I I don't like ballet. I mean, I I don't care for it. But us likes ballet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that Sharon likes ballet and I don't like it. So I just acquiesce and go along. You would never catch me going to a ballet on my own. But when I go with this woman, I like the way we dress. 
I like the way we interact around the performance. Us likes ballet. Who you know it wouldn't be my particular choice? Us likes baseball. Because we like to visit in a place that's green and not much action goes on. Something happens that we can we can get all excited about. So it has a personality, it has its own likes, it has its own dislikes. If you pay attention, you can pick out that rhythm. And it's not just you, or it's not just your partner, it's what you are together. There's also this wonderful thing of metaphorical evidence of this usness that I think really makes the difference. It really sells me on it. You know, I, when, we, when we look at children, for instance, what are children? Well, at the basic level, I, you know, in, Sharon and I have two children, two lovely, great children, but they're half Sharon's genetic material and half my genetic material. And by the way, not the best half of our genetic material. In fact, it's a quite random half of our genetic material. And somehow, those two halves come back together to form a whole new human being. It's similar to me. It's similar to Sharon. But it's neither one of us. That's the metaphorical information that is there in the us relationship. Our children are simply representations of our us. You know, Sharon and I, uh, you know, if, if our marriage went south and we divorced one another, we couldn't divorce our children because they come out of us, our relationship. We can end our relationship, but our kids can never end their relationship to the usness that they come from. That's why it becomes so essential to the idea. And I, I love the metaphorical evidence of what that means also, you know, because if you, if you track back of how did this genetic information get exchanged, well, it has to do with sex, right? And, you know, in the sexual relationship, when you're exchanging this genetic information back and forth, you know, it happens where you totally lose control of yourself. That's what, that's what sexual orgasm is. It's, it's an involuntary series of muscle contractions that release all the sexual tension in your body in about 15 to 20 seconds. And, you know, and you're out of control. I mean, you can't, you can't stop it once it starts. And you can't grab it back. And you can't say, oh, I'm going to make this something different. It is what it is. You're totally out of control with it. And it's awful, isn't it? <laughs> no. When, you, when you're totally out of control and you've given yourself that way, how is it that you feel? You know, this, this sense of, That's called fulfillment. Very close to the biblical idea of shalom filled up over the brim, over the top. 
and then some. That's the idea of what fulfillment does, is you feel peaceful, you feel settled, you have no need at that point. Does that make sense? Yeah. I don't, when you create this usness, yeah, it takes a little work to give up part of your individuality for the sake of accessing what the other person has to offer and what you can become together. But at the end of the day, that's not a, that's not a terrible surrender. That, my friends, I think we'd say is a sweet surrender. Make sense? Now, contrast that with the message that we get about the purpose of marriage in our society, right? What would society tell you the purpose of marriage is? Procreation. Yeah, some people would say procreation. To have my needs met. To have my needs met, yeah. In, in other words, what I want out of the relationship is I want you to make me happy. I forgot that I was uh, actually had a PowerPoint here. Here we go. The focus of the individual society is to say, yeah, your individual needs are the most important things. Now, I, 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 I tell you, when we become an us, you don't stop being an individual. I mean, there is a sense of who I am, there is a sense of who Sharon is, but it's what we are together that I start looking for that is def definitional around the marriage. Uh, to say that, oh, it's just about my needs or me meeting her needs really gets us in a quandary, doesn't it? Because if we focus on that too long, what actually happens is, is we start this competition of whose needs are going to be met. Who's going to do the need meeting around here? Well, I need it worse than you. Well, I don't know that you need it worse than I do. Uh, you need to take care of me. That competition is deadly to relationships. And you probably have seen this in marriages and probably your own marriage. At a time where you start saying, no, 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 no. I need the attention. I need the care. I need the nurture. That step puts you in a quandary with one another where you start competing with one another for what you think of as scarce resources, right? Now, you know, I, one other thing that I want to say about competition. When you start being in competition with one another, you'll go to a marriage and family therapist at some point or another, and they'll teach you this word called compromise, right? Well, compromise, it, when you boil it down, is just competing nicely. In other words, it's not a game changer for your relationship. It does not do your us that much good. Because you'll say, okay, okay, we'll do it your way this time, your individual needs, next time it'll be my turn. And then we get into the same competition of who went last, whose turn is it, where are we eating, who or what are we paying for, what kind of car are we gonna drive, what kind of parenting we're gonna do, and it can become toxic after a while. You see, marriage instructs and enriches through the partners giving to one another. This is the, this is the idea of usness, is that I don't just give to my partner 
I'm actually giving to the third identity, usness. I'm strengthening what we are together. And if I change my focus from Sharon's needs to what is good for the relationship, it makes all sorts of sense, right? What do we chase, what do we base child rearing on? Well, if you, if you uh, ever get a legal definition of it, they'll say, we decide what's good for the child based on the best interest of the child. And if you're a parent, you know that phraseology a lot. Because as a parent, you make all sorts of sacrifices for the good of your child. You put your needs on hold so the child will exclusively benefit. Sometimes you'll even go without uh, things that you need in order for the child to have what he or she wants, right? That's true sacrifice. Well, if you thought of that in the best interest of our relationship, if you thought of it as the best interest, what's in the best interest of our usness? Then you start getting to the game changer of really making a difference. By the way, all that, those of you that have children, when you, when you give and give and give to your children, are you growing them up or are they growing you up? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's what it feels like. George Will, many, many years ago, said, you know, uh, children raise adults emotionally. Adults raise children physically. And in that, they create an interwound cord of family relationship. I think that that's brilliant. We actually, children actually grow us up. And so when we get to the bottom line, what's the purpose of marriage? Sharon and I would argue, the purpose of marriage is to grow you up, to get you changed. You learn, as you give to the usness, you start learning about yourself, you start learning the areas where you really need to change. And that change, my friends, will do you some good. If I'm changing for the sake of usness, I have a lot more skin in the game than if I'm changing because Sharon asked me to. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Good, so what keeps relationships alive? You know, uh, this is one of the things that uh, Sharon and I are known for. You know, you would say, well, you know, love. Love is giving adoration, companionship, and sacrifice for another's good. Well, that's good stuff. Nobody's gonna not like love, right? In some cases, you probably even love love, right? But we would, add, we would add one other aspect to this. It's also trust, the ability to give to one another freely because you believe that the person who is your main squeeze will give freely to what you're going to need and what the relationship is going to need. In other words, I trust Sharon to do her part. So therefore, I don't have to worry when I trust her I don't have to worry about whether she's going to do her part and I can just concentrate on my business, which is doing my part. Trustworthiness, I, I, a family therapist once said, he said uh, that trustworthiness leads to the golden highway of giving. 
When I trust you, I concentrate on just giving to you. When I don't trust you, what I start doing is I start pulling back or withdrawing, or I start threatening you and saying, this is what you need to do, or I start manipulating you. It becomes extraordinarily destructive. Well, so Sharon and I think of this usness. So what are the requirements? How do we, how do we change relationships? How do we make relationships work? Well, we would say three things. I'm go we're going to cover two of them today and because I want to give you some illustrations of how this works out in real life. But the first element of making an usness work is creating a safe enough place where you can operate with one another. So you can live together without harming one another, without killing one another. I used to think of it like this, you know, it's like both of you are sitting in a rowboat. You know, can you picture that rowboat? It's, and you know, the, the, bow, the bow of the boat is behind you and both of you are at the oars, you know, and both of you have one oar and you're rowing together, right? Stability means that we crawl into that boat when we're first married and we're just so in love, you know, and we, we're just so enamored with one another. We can't hardly believe how lucky we are that we get to be with this person. And we gaze into each other's eyes. But sooner or later, we start having to do the work of marriage, right? Moving along the, the boat. You know, and so we do this a while, and I start saying things like, oh dear, you know, I notice that you're not exactly putting your oar in the water when you're moving back and forth. It would be much easier for me if you would row like I row. And she says, oh, well, dear, I have you know, my family taught me how to oar and row, and so therefore, you need to, I've been noticing that you do it all wrong. If you would pay attention to me, then we would get somewhere. Pretty soon, you know, we're jerking those oars and whacking one another <laughs> over the head, right? Because we, we carry our issues from the past of what we think family ought to be, what we think relationships ought to be, into the context of our own marriages. Stability, first of all, is saying, can we, can we get in the boat together and move along without killing one another? You know, that's the first thing that we have to achieve in marriage. And boy, this part of your usness, you either get it in the first two years and you work those things out, or you're still clubbing each other over the head with oars. Uh, that's, that's what it basically boils down to. To be able to do that, you really need these two characteristics of humility and respect. Humility, because it's not your spouse. You know, we spend a lot of money and time in uh, psychological services and uh, psychological services that we offer to single people particularly on how to find somebody that's perfect for you, that's compatible with you in every way. Well, I, and I'm not against those services. I think, you know, compatibility can, uh, first of all, uh, help you meet 
a lot of people that you would never come in contact with. I, I generally like those services. But the idea that compatibility alone will make the difference, it won't. Mm -hmm. You still have to do the hard work of marriage, which means you have to deal with yourself. That's what humility is about in this context. It's not your spouse that's the problem. It's you. It's you. Let me say it one more time. It's you. Because you have just as many problems as your spouse does. I'm not saying your spouse is, has a clean bill of health. I'm saying that you have those issues. And at the end of the day, those are the only issues that you can do anything about. You have to respect your spouse enough, therefore, to let him or her do the work only he or she can do. And you need to start working on yourself. Well, where do we get in trouble with this? You know, the primary difficulty is, first of all, is we have a lot of old issues that are really hot buttons for us, right? I, you know, Sharon and I deal with a, a program called uh, Restoration Therapy, which is basically talking about how we form identity around the way that people loved us and a sense of trust, uh, a sense of safety around how people are, have been trustworthy in our lives. Well, for most of us, we come from backgrounds where, you know, our parents did okay. Some of us come from a place where, gee, our parents didn't do a very good job at all at loving us or being trustworthy. And we have, we have damaged identities and we have damaged sense of safeties, right? But this I do know. No matter how good your parents were, no matter how good your family was, you didn't come out perfect. Because your parents weren't perfect. And even if they were close to perfect, even if they loved you the way that you deserved and taught you that you're, you belong and that you're loved and that you're really worthy, then you ran into middle school, right? <laughs> Where people were more than willing to tell you, you don't belong, you're not worthy, and you're certainly not loved around here. Uh, mentors, coaches, uh, first relationships, college professors. There are a number of things that lead into damage on our identity and sense of safety. This is what we know about the brain. Neuropsychologists actually agree upon this. You have a huge, marvelous instrument in your brain. It is like the best super, super, super computer you can ever have. It has, on its own, around 300 million neurons. When you talk about all the synapses that actually connect with one, one another, that gives a possibility of about 20 million billion possible connections. It's gonna be a while before we build a computer that's that crafty. But here's the deal. Here's what neuropsychologists agree upon. 
your brain is lazy. It has all this capability to be able to make different choices, make different connections. You know what it chooses to do? Is what's, what's the easiest? What's the handiest? Therefore, if you've had past pain that, that said that I'm not loved, every time you run into your spouse and you feel, I don't know if he or she loves me, guess where you go? Right back to the same old behavior where you first learned that. If you start feeling like, I'm not safe. He or she's trying to take advantage of me. Bam. You, you don't reason it out. You're reacting before you even know that you're reacting. <clears throat> because it's just like the back of your hand. Does that make sense? Your brain basically does what it already knows. And that's especially true when you get emotionally dysregulated. Where do you get emotionally dysregulated? Well, in your everyday uh, being with your spouse, it's over your identity and your sense of safety. You know, for me, you know, I, I'm a big identity guy. I grew up in a family where there's really questions on whether I was loved or not because my family was physically abusive. And man, anything that makes me feel like I'm not really cool, or I'm not really the best, that I'm not well held, man, I get angry really, really fast. It's a hot button for me. Sharon comes from a different family. She, she grew up in a family that suffered a lot of death three significant deaths within a 10 year period for different causes that were very disturbing. She absolutely knows her family loved her. Her, her issue is not with her identity, it's with her sense of safety. Does that make sense why it would be that way? So therefore, anything that makes her feel like, oh, this is unsafe or there's a chance that somebody's going to get hurt and I'm going to be alone. Bam. That's her hot button. Do you see how couples often fight with one another over and over and over again because their hot buttons get pushed? It's not that your spouse is so wise in figuring out how to get under your skin. It's that they're just a normal human being and you're extraordinarily fragile in these particular areas where it touches your pain. Does that make sense? And all of us have these pains. All of us have these pains. So that's one reason that we become unstable. The other reason is, is we get ingrained conflictual patterns. You know, it's like when we're forming this usness, we don't really know that we're forming this usness. We only we only know what we know, right? We only know the environment that we get into. So, you know, I'm going to just outline, and you have these in your, in your handout. You'll see that, it, you know, like we differ. When we get together with the spouse, there's a potential difference in the way that we see the need for intimacy. You know, some people have a high need for intimacy. They just love it. They've got to know every little detail. 
So they're after their spouse all the time, say, let's be connected, let's be connected, let's be connected, let's be connected. Some spouses are like, whoa, that's too close for me. And so when you get a pursuer and distancer that are married to one another, you can imagine what that looks like. Their pursuer is going after them, and the distancer is going, <laughs> and they're matching each other one for one. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, now you may be on the same page when this comes, but when you're forming an us you literally have to say, hmm, which one of those makes sense? When we look at this, does it make more sense for us to be pursuing intimacy with one another at this intense, over-the-top basis? Or does it make sense that we disconnect from one another and distance from one another? Well, where's the obvious answer? Yeah, absolutely. You see how that would force the spouses to deal with themselves? Where does that need, that deep, deep need for intimacy come from? Usually your hot buttons. Where does that need come from to be able to keep myself safe by using distance so I don't deal with my spouse? Probably from your hot button. That's the way it is. Getting things done. I love this in the research, right? Getting things done. There are those of us that overfunction when we when we're when we have a task in front of us. There are some of us that cannot put it down. It's like nope. We have to talk about it. We have to keep on it. We have to do it till we solve it. Right? There's no time like right now, like this second, to get things done. And then there are some of us that are like and and by the way, an overfunctioner is going to say not only right now, but I have all the skills needed <laughs> to be able to do it. And if you don't, good news, I can tell you exactly how it needs to be done, right? And some, some are under-functioners, right? They're like, eh, manana. It, it, it'll get done. You know, they kind of have this uh, hang loose attitude, right? I, uh, someday we'll get that done, right? Well, again, if you're making an us decision, where do you want to form a healthy balance of those two? Now, you may want to lean a little bit more toward over-functioning, or you may want to lean a little bit toward under-functioning, but you see, you've got to make you've got to make this decision to say we're going to intentionally make our relationship stand for things where we're not going to let things pile up, but we're also not going to get so uh, focused on activities that we forget to live. Dealing with change, another one of these. You know, some people deal with change like this. I'm not changing. Ever. I love these kind of families because, uh, you know, they, they have children and everything is peachy until about 10 years old when the child is wanting to exercise some more independence and they start entering the adolescence and they're wanting freedom. If you're rigid, you say, mm, nope, it's my job to make sure 
that I raise you until you're 23 and a half years old. <laughs> and so it's going to be my way, always. Those are rigid boundaries that you, can, you, can't, you can't function around. It just is dictated to them. That's not healthy. On the other hand, some people are chaotic. Hey, you know, whatever. If the two-year-old wants to decide to be in charge, I can live with that. Let's give it a try, right? Well, obviously, again, when you're, when you're sitting there objectively looking at it, you're, you know the kind of usness that actually works best for the family. You need both of those skills. You need an ability to let go, and you need the ability to structure. And by the way, the family life demands that you do both at different sequences of the family life cycle. You know, when your children are little, it makes absolute sense to have a lot of structure, a lot of rules. When your children are launching, those rules cannot work. You've got to let go. Make sense? Good. Uh, problem solving. This is, you know, some people when they have a problem, it's like we will not go to bed until we have this thing solved. We've got to talk out every aspect of it. Some people, that's the last thing they want to do. You know, I, I always used to. I always used to feel like this. Sharon and I naturally lend toward Sharon's a more aggressive problem solver. I'm more of an avoidant problem solver, right? So it always feels like this, like Sharon's grabbing my collar and saying, we're going to talk about this. And I'm going, no, don't make me, don't make me. <laughs> right? Well, obviously, I know that issues have to be solved. They have to be solved. I also know that there's something called timing. Now, Sharon can easily see, ah, this might not be the right time. So our usness gets problem solved, but it also realizes that we can't solve everything. We can't make the turn on a dime. Sometimes we need more time. You're beginning to get the idea of how this goes. Identifying your patterns in terms of dealing with conflict. Some people are blaming and placating in terms of the activity of intimacy. And this is a big one. There's a big gender difference that a lot of people identify. I don't see it as much anymore because I think we're getting further away from gender differences and uh, where it's more acceptable not to be socialized just in terms of this is what males do, this is what females do. There's a more general idea that this is what humans do. But there is definitely, when you start figuring out how to be intimate with one another, some people do it from their head, some people do it from their heart. They feel, it, they feel their way into it, some people think their way through it. Uh, there's room for both, but you have to decide and deciding what our usness is going to look like is where your cutting edge is. Got it? Good deal. So another area where we build usness, and this, this starts coming along at really a crucial time, is around security. Can we live together in a trustworthy fashion? Remember what trustworthiness does. 
It allows you to give to one another and it allows you to feel safe in the relationship. That's what we're really after. When you feel safe, when you feel like you can give, then you, you're going to feel secure in the relationship. That's what your usness is about. Now, here are the virtues that go with that. Responsibility and reliability. In other words, I know what my job is, and I actually try to do it. I know what my job is, and I actually try to do it. Reliability is, is that I keep doing it ad infinitum. I know what my job is, and I do it in a reliable fashion. I don't let you down. We do it together, in other words. All relationships gains, all relationships gain, uh, are based on this idea of balance of give and take. You know, there are things that I need to do to make the relationship work. There are things that Sharon needs to do to make the relationship work. When those things are in balance, they're not balanced rigidly, but over the 40 years of Sharon and I being married, there are times where I've given more, there are times where Sharon's given more. It's like a tightrope walker, right? There are times that I get more, there are times that Sharon gets more, but if you look at the long haul of the relationship, we didn't fall off the wire. That's the idea of balanced giving. You have to give in a reliable fashion. And human beings, I just want to tell you this, have an extraordinarily high threshold for reliability. It's almost 90%. What, what do you mean when you say that? It means that if I don't show up the same and do my part of the relationship nine times out of 10, then you won't trust me. And it, it doesn't matter whether it's a spouse or not. You know, we, do, we, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't even go that direction. Uh, you know, think about, think about how many of you would hire a builder to build you a house that was only successful building the house 70% of the time. You know, you, you wouldn't. Reliability means that idea. Well, security also starts building into this idea of how do we move toward one another in an equitable way. Uh, you, have, you have in front of you in your outline the idea of the work of marriage. You know, there are several factors that are here. You know, we exist in a culture where gender roles and power issues have been a big deal, and they will continue to be a big deal, you know, is that women have been expected to do much, much more of uh, the work, uh, if you will, to make the family run, while males have traditionally done much, much more work that have been occupational. If you haven't, if you haven't been around for the last 50 years, that's, those lines are absolutely blurred now. But we haven't necessarily adapted the gender power structure into thinking that way. So, you know, we have to face this idea of traditional roles versus egalitarian roles. Now, uh, you know, there basically, when we look at the literature, there are three different types of marriages. Traditional marriages, which is exactly what I'm talking about. Normally, that you think of men doing more 
intrinsic type roles or work outside the home, women do more traditional house family activities that is built around raising family. Now, you know, if you have that kind of that kind of structure and that kind of flexibility, that's fine for you to choose a traditional role structure. But you, d you need to know that about 82% of households now have dual career uh, income earners. And so, you know, it begs the question, you know, if you're gonna have both people working outside the home, you're going to have to accommodate how to get the work done that just normally takes place in family life. Um, we talk about egalitarian marriages where we say, no, 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 we're gonna, things have to be absolutely fair. And so we take each task and we divide it equally, right? Each task. Well, now that may be fair, but it's really hard to employ because it doesn't make use of the spouse's natural gifts and talents. You know, I, I, let's say one of you is really great at keeping finances straight and really good with numbers. Well, egalitarianism would say, no, I do it half the time, you do it half the time. Uh, that isn't necessarily the best solution always. It doesn't utilize the gifts and talents of everybody. Companionate marriages, on the other hand, say, yeah, there are things that I do that are good. There are things that you do that you have particular talents in. Let's make sure that the number of activities is fair and equitable. In other words, we'll get the work done, but I may be the one that pays the bills, or Sharon may be the one that pays the bills. I may be the one that does the cooking, or Sharon may be the one that does the cooking. We'll balance out the specific task, even though one of those things may land all on me. Does that make sense? Yeah, traditional marriages are hard to maintain equity in. Uh, egalitarian marriages are hard to maintain balance. Companionate marriages, we want to suggest to you, are a good way for your usness to survive. But there's an easy way to find that out, you know? Look at the activity and tasks that go on in the marriage. They're in utilitarian tasks, things that are just business, you know, like doing the laundry or cooking the food or doing the shopping or paying the bills. And then there are intrinsic tasks. Who does the emotional nurturing, the caregiving, the, the, the really connecting with people that needs to take place, the most important relational aspects? Well, a lot of times we'll have husbands and wives just mark these down and saying, what are the things that I actually do? And we compare the list with one another. Is this a fair trade-off? Now, uh, if, if you're thinking, well, we're really with it now, right? We've made so many changes over the last 50 years in making this more equitable toward females, right? where males are doing more at the home, right? S sorry, gang. <laughs> what, we, what we know is that, uh, you know, I, I, uh, a well-known book, The Second Shift, actually found that females 
did about 82% of the work that make households run in, in the early 80s. A follow-up study that in the early 2010s showed that females had made a lot of progress, that males were doing their part 4% more at the time. <laughs> Females were now doing about 78% of the actual work. When we compare this, it's really illuminating for your usness as saying, you know, I need to do more. I'll never forget when Sharon, uh, Sharon had an aunt that died and she went with her mother to a funeral. And so, uh, you know, we had our two children at that time. And so I was working and uh, I said, you know, you go, uh, there's no problem, and I thought I was—I thought I was doing my share. I thought we had a really companionate marriage. Man, she came back five days later, and the first thing I—one of the first things out of my mouth was what? You're doing way too much because I've been doing your half of the stuff, and man, was it illuminating to me. And we sat down that night, and I said, "I'm taking over this and this and this." in order to start making it fairer in the relationship. That's the kind of us work that really makes a difference. Well, I want to, I, I want to quickly, let, I, parenting issue is a big deal, but I just want to, I, I want to touch on one other element, and that's finances. In financial issues, this is a big deal of, gaining trustworthiness, right? Uh, what I'm saying is, is that we have this perspective in our society and it's easy to get into overindulgence versus underindulgence. If you're a person that is uh, 20 years younger than I am, up to my age, then you're probably raised in a culture that was overindulgent. Uh, if you're younger than that, you're probably living in a culture that is more on the underindulgent side. That's the way that we're starting to see millennials turn in this last thing, they, you know, which, is a, which would be really a good thing. But if you look at that kind of framework, we also have a tendency to use money for particular purposes. And those purposes are power and anxiety. You have built into your brain a fight or flight response, right? Those of you that are fighters, you tend to take power. And if it's wrestling with money, you're gonna take all the power you can to make money work for you. If you're a flighter, if you are anxious about things, you're probably going to use money to try to keep you safe. This is how it works out. So if we plot it on an axis, you'll see this in your handout, that if we plot it on a, a uh, circumflex model of anxiety to power, intersecting with overindulgent to underindulgent, you see these, these four elements of where it actually shows up where it actually shows up of how we use money. If, for instance, you're an overindulger and you're most concerned with power, then chances are you use money for your status. 
keeping up with the Joneses. That's how you, you look at money as saying, I need to prove that I made it. On the other hand, if you're overindulgent and you're anxious, you're using money to escape your anxiety, you might land in this quadrant of being using money for enjoyment. You know, our family needs to spend more family time together. Let's buy a boat. <laughs> that will do it. You know, that's that's the attitude. I, let's, let's do something way out of the ordinary, something that will capture my attention. If you're anxious and you're underindulging, probably you use money as security. That's what keeps me safe. If I have, if I have fifty thousand dollars in the bank, you think that would cure my anxiety? No. If I use money as security, then I can't wait till I get a hundred thousand dollars in the bank. It's 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 never enough. And if I'm underindulgent, but I'm based in power, I use money to control situations. I use money to control relationships. Well. Obviously, this is true, is that if you lean toward the middle, a good us decision, you're going to be, you may lean one way or the other into one of these quadrants, but you know how to use money for the best benefit of the family. You can make an us decision. You're not tied to saying, individually, I have to have money to be able to do the things I want when I want them. I want to have fun. We're not doing it that way. I have to have money in the bank to know that I'm safe. If you fight that out, you will fight and fight and fight and never be able to build trustworthiness. Does that make sense? You know, I'm all for money management programs. You know, Dave Ramsey's program, that's just great. I think the Crown Ministries, you know, that's, that's a great financial program too. None of those will work unless you finally make the us decision that says, hmm, we need to be balanced. And that's what usness is about. Your usness enables you to take the step into creating a relationship that is not only loving, but is safe. It gives you the opportunity to learn from your usness how to become a better individual. Yeah. Okay, so any questions that I can answer before we take a short break? Yep. I was just wondering, um, on the anxiety level, it almost looks like it, it, you could fall into the trap of ping-ponging back and forth because you over you're, if you're overindulging uh, because of your anxiety so you enjoy a lot of stuff suddenly now you realize whoa I overindulged now you're going to switch book over to the yeah. but it's still anxiety driven which, which is what spouses usually do they try to balance each other out for instance in parenting you know uh, Sharon it has, she, she had a natural tendency to want to be more permissive with our children I had a natural tendency to want to be more authoritarian with our children, right? Well, we ping pong around one another all the time. 
think she's and talking about me ping-ponging all by myself. Yeah. <laughs> and that can happen. That can happen. You can, you can feel the need to, to uh, do more than one of these things because sometimes you feel powerful, sometimes you feel anxious, sometimes you feel overindulgent, sometimes you feel underindulgent. But if you take a look at it, where do you spend more time? Yeah, that, that's the element. But you shouldn't try to balance each other off. When you try to balance each other off, you destroy your asness. Okay, gang. Thanks for your attention. We'll have a 15-minute break, and then we'll get back after it.